This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Rebecca, you got to talk to Greta Lee, the star of Past Lives, which is the kind of movie that I think in many other years would be like, oh, it's this like small, lovely film. But like, I really worry that it'll get buried underneath all the fall releases. Um, But Past Lives as an A24 film has the distinct advantage of having actors who can do press for it. So Greta Lee has, I think, gotten very justifiably celebrated for this movie. She's been able to talk to people like you to really bring out what makes Past Lives so special. And I think you wouldn't have needed a strike to really focus your attention on Greta Lee. You're a big fan of this movie. Um, But she really she's such a good spokesperson for this movie, which I think this interview really bears out. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I think, know her for these sort of quirkier roles she's done on Russian Doll. And I think she's on The Morning Show now. But Past Lives is such a showcase for her range and ability. And it's this role where you can tell there's so much going on in this woman's mind, but she's having to sort of subtly uh, display it a lot of the time. And I think it's just an incredible performance. So it was really interesting to hear how she prepared for it. Yeah. So what did she share with you? I know that like Celine Song was not really someone who was on her radar um, before she got the script for this film and the script kind of blew her mind, as I imagine it did for many people who read it the first time. So what was that prep like to get into the world of past lives? Well, first she talks about how she didn't get the role and it went to someone, um, I guess, younger. (laughs) She doesn't say who. And then a whole like year went by and then Celine was recasting it and cast her. So it's one of those stories that I'm sure aspiring actors hear and are like, okay, you're your dream role can pass you by and then come back. There's hope for everyone. But <laughs> once she got it, I thought one of the most interesting she, things she did is um, she hired Bong Joon-ho's translator, Sharon Choi, which people may remember from the Parasite year where she was oh, yeah. on stage with him. She was a star. She was a star. I was like uh, very um, starstruck by this story. So she hired her <laughs> to help her with her Korean because Greta speaks Korean, but they had to find what Korean would sound like from a woman who, you know, spent most of her life being raised in Canada and the States. So it wouldn't be the same as someone who had been raised in Korea. So it was a really uh, subtle nuance that I thought was um, really interesting that she paid attention to. I also saw that in the process of getting cast, she got a voicemail for an important meeting that turned out to be for Greta Gerwig, which is so crazy to me. (laughs) 
There can't be two Gretas. Apparently, in so there can be twelve Chrises, but only two, only one Greta. <laughs> Do you know if they have met? Or I assume it's so. They, they're both New Yorkers. Like, hopefully, at some point, they've been like, "Yep, you get my mail, I get your mail. <laughs> We're just gonna have to live like this." I know. I didn't ask her, but I I would assume this season they'll definitely be running into each other. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I think that's such a funny story. Um, well, I want to hear much more about it in um, your conversation that we're about to hear with Past Life star Greta Lee. I'm so excited today to welcome Greta Lee to the podcast. She's the star of The Incredible Past Lives, uh, which originally came out uh, at Sundance and then hit theaters in June. It's a beautiful story about a woman living in New York whose childhood sweetheart from Korea comes to visit her and sort of opens her up to an interesting exploration of her her past and her identity. Um, Greta, thank you for being here. Hello. It's so nice to be here. And what a succinct and and great uh movie description. I always wonder, like, can I do that succinctly in that way? <laughs> I don't think it was that succinct because I didn't even mention her husband or John McGarrow. There's so many layers. But that's it's... what we mean by succinct, you know? We'll get to that, you know? You know, I loved this film. I think about it all the time. I talk about it all the time still. Uh, I think it's one that really sticks with you. So I'm, I'm excited we get to talk. Um, you know, I... I've loved your work in things like Russian Doll and Morning Show, but from what I understand, Past Lives was your first lead feature film role. Is that right to call yes. it that? And it's huge because it. I think the story really depends on you know this character and this actor pulling it off because it all sort of is on your shoulders. So I want to hear about how you got the role, but I also wonder when you did get it, if you sort of realized how big this would be for you and and as an actor. Sure. Well, thank you for acknowledging the challenges of stepping into this position uh, (laughs) for me. Um, It started out in a sort of very kind of boring and traditional way. I got an email uh, in my inbox, and I think it said something like in the subject line, like, Korean, you speak it. And I kind of (laughs) thought like, ugh. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, okay, here we go. Let's read the thing. Um, and I'd never heard of Celine before. Um, I had really no context going into reading this PDF file. Um, and I started to read, and it was immediately clear that it was something. Um, it really was. It was one of those experiences where you... I, you know, I read it in one sitting. I cried my eyes out. I don't know if I'd ever had that specific, like, like crying while trying to read is actually quite difficult. Like, I had to take certain pauses and breaks and just kind of just, like, try to keep reading the words on the page. Um, and there are so many things that, that struck me immediately. And uh, it was clear, like, this is this will be something, um, something really special. And I was terrified of it. And it it was definitely something that felt really scary to do potentially. Um, And then at that point, I did what I normally do in these situations. I auditioned, I put myself on tape, and then I didn't get the job. And, you know, I think that's just after so many years of doing this, 
that's part of this. But on occasion, there are instances when when it really hurts, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. It is hard to let go. And this was one of them. But at the time, it couldn't be clearer that that like it wasn't my job. But part of this was getting this phone call after I had uh, put myself out on tape for this. And it was a message from this assistant asking if I could meet um, for like a really important meeting, uh, this restaurant in the village. And, and I just, it, I just assumed for whatever idiotic reason, it just, I thought I got the job. Mm. And then it turned out that that phone call was actually for Greta Gerwig <laughs> and the assistant had gotten us no. Yes. And, but this is what I mean by like, <laughs> it could not have been clearer that I didn't get this job. Like, as if I needed like additional messaging from the universe that, that I wasn't going to be able to do this, which is why almost a year later, when it came back around, it was just so completely surreal. Like I, I think I had forced myself to put this out of my mind because it just, I don't know, I felt like I had to. Um, and I got a call asking if I would, that they had, you know, recast they were going to recast they were going to go older <laughs> yay <laughs> um and if i if i was willing to meet with Celine and mm-hmm. that day and, it, and i had no time to sort of i don't know like engineer anything or like try to like you know figure out like certain tricks up my sleeve or like some sort of like something um there was no time and i knew that she wanted to read some scenes and or the Korean of it too. You know, I couldn't like secretly get like an emergency tutor. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and this felt very at that point because it'd been so long too. I think there maybe was something to that of accepting, well, I'm not going to bring some kind of engineered artifice to what I thought this could be. Yeah. It already felt like such a lost cause. <laughs> So I thought, like, I might as well, like, I'm going to put, like, whatever soul I felt when I first read it into this. Because why not? Um, it was also the pandemic. It was also, like, lockdown. It was, you know, it was a crazy time. And I think I was already shifting my sense of, like, not just what I was looking for in terms of work, but, like, how I wanted to approach work differently, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And, like, trying to, like, hold myself accountable to what I what I've wanted to do and the kinds of opportunities I've wanted and the certain things that I've maybe secretly known that I could do, but wasn't always given a shot. Anyways, I did that and we talked. It was a wild meeting. She was unlike anyone I'd ever met. She was just like so brazen with exactly what kind of movie she wanted to make Mm -hmm. and how she wanted to go about it. And we talked about all sorts of all sorts of things like subverting genre, like how can we, this is a romantic drama, but how can we make certain elements feel like it's almost science fiction? Like how mm-hmm. can we suspend time and space? I remember talking about melancholia, that opening, mm-hmm. as it relates to the bar scene we were reading together. Like how can we evoke cinematically this feeling of, of life that, there are these certain moments that on the page could could seem boring on one level, like they're ordinary to people talking, but can we show it in a way that 
can feel extraordinary. I mean, all of these like kind of like supremely nerdy conversations. I felt like two little girls like scheming together. (laughs) And it was so genuinely exciting. I was so floored by her. And and then at the end of that call, she gave me the job. Oh, good. No more waiting. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's just completely crazy. Um, yeah. I think I took a bunch of selfies of myself screaming at the end of it, like after we'd hung up, just to like as like evidence that yeah. that happened. Like I just couldn't understand how it could work out that way. So how did you, once you had the job, how did you yourself prepare to play her? I mean, where do you get your inspiration from? I I know, you know, this story is very close to Celine's personal journey. You know, she makes it clear it's not a biopic of her life. But did you study her because you knew that this was based on her sort of own experience? Yeah. I think I started working from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I think this is one of those scenarios where when the script is so good and certain elements are so good, really dreamy, it feels like it's yours to mess up. Mm. And after, I don't know, 20 years of waiting for something like this, I didn't want to mess it up. I didn't want to waste it. I didn't. There was so much for me personally that was riding on doing this its full justice on my terms, finally, you know? There's no way that I could take that for granted at this point. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of unsexy, but there was a ton of prep that went into this. I, I was still shooting Russian Doll. And we were filming in Budapest and, and New York. And I remember carrying around this, the past lives script with me, like some sort of tome, like it, this like shaggy script that started to look like it was like a, I don't know, like it was a mummified, I don't know, <laughs> um, with me to work out a bunch of different things um, in trying to access some specific things for Nora Moon. But like, you know, immediately there's a language component. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never done a movie in Korean, let alone any other language. Like, act, like I want to remind people that acting is hard to do mm-hmm. in English. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so, honestly, I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to access my full facility, the things that I have, if I had to do it in another language. Um, and because of who Nora is and because of this story, it meant something really specific. Um, And I guess what I mean by that is instead of going this more conventional route of like, let's say, getting a dialect coach, someone who can wipe my voice clean of its Americanness, Mm -hmm. to put it bluntly, and make me sound like a certain idea of a a woman from Seoul. That would not work for this. I was so grateful to, to convince them to let me use... Sharon Choi, who I think most people would know best as Wang Jun-ho's translator. She's a celebrity in her own right now. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Mega, mega superstar. She is so rad. I remember knowing of her first getting to know what she is and this rare gift she has of traversing both 
separate cultures mm-hmm. um, that is, like, so much bigger than just language. I remember the first time I watched her translate some of them, Director Vong's jokes yeah. in real time. And, and as a comedy person, I just, I mean, I became obsessed with her then. But there was this idea that maybe for this movie we could be really specific about the language because it's part of this. It's language is identity. It's so fluid. It's so slippery. And we had this dream of, okay, even within one scene, what if we could really take this opportunity to figure out after years of not speaking Korean all the time, how would she sound speaking to Hezong mm. as a young adult for the first time in many years? What does that like westernized theater girl sound like speaking Korean as opposed to hours later in that same conversation speaking to him in Korean again? Um, and Sharon was really instrumental in that, in helping me understand not just like sound, but the cultural context of all of this. And I'm sorry, I'm starting to sound like a total like linguistic, like wannabe graduate student or something. <laughs> but it really was like that. I guess that's what I mean. It's like of being really specific about some of these choices. Mm. So it's not just sort of like a homogenized, flattened representation, an idea of this kind of, you know, Asian American woman, immigrant, whatever, because ultimately in the movie, it, it's about love. It's about people. And yeah. And, and, you know, there are other things too. There's so much that went into the physicality. Like when we think about falling in love and like, mm-hmm. what is that? Like the physiology of falling in love is actually supremely embarrassing. Like we have all of these cinematic portrayals of people that it's just gorgeous, it's sweeping, but the reality and the thing I think we were so fascinated by is actually like it's it's a very expansive full spectrum of an experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there are some like dating shows we watched, these mm. old Korean dating shows. Um, There's one called Love on the Air where they would bring a famous Korean actress, let's say, and um, reunite her with her childhood sweetheart and film their reunion. Hmm. Yeah, and there are things like that, like that facial expression of like what happens, like within like moments, if you broke it down, you see like a full range of like terror, shock, grief, and ecstasy, joy. I mean, all of those things um, that we try to uh, also consider when we're doing something like this. Yeah, That's so there's more, but I'm going to pause. <laughs> I feel like that a lot. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, Their downfall was swift and brutal. 
With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. You know, you talk about knowing how high the stakes were for you to get this right for this script and this story. By the time you were on set, were you able to sort of shed those pressures so you could just shoot? Or is it something, you know, at night you would think about? I mean, what was the actual state of mind during production for you? I never forgot. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I like can't, I can't make light of, of that, of that knowingness at this point in my life. I mean, it's sort of like, like going to your own funeral <laughs> and making okay. peace. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like super intense, but what I mean by that is like a, a certain like acceptance actually that maybe like what what am I what happens if maybe I'm not going to end up having the type of career that maybe I had set out to have when I was first starting out as mm. as a young person just because of so many variables, you know, we're actors. It's, it's like you're not entitled to any of any of this. Yeah. It's a nice birth if you can get it. And also, I mean, it would feel disingenuous if I didn't acknowledge that there were some real tangible inequities just in terms of what was available. Mm -hmm. So this is why this is also wild to me. It's like I'd already made peace with and it had like it's and it's not really tragic because I don't identify as a victim of my own life. I've loved the people that I've gotten to play. It's that Stanislavski quote, there are no small parts, mm. only small actors. I, I I, wouldn't be here if I didn't wholeheartedly believe that. And I would, I really think that Nora is sort of like, she's came into existence on the wings of Sujin, Homeless Heidi, Haewon even, uh, I don't know, Maxine, Stella Buck, all these people. Mm -hmm. But now that I've had this chance, kind of ruined everything because now yeah. now I feel now I might feel differently but that's just something I'm trying to figure out right now so digging into this character I, I talked to Celine pretty recently about how telling the story might have changed her own perspective on her own upbringing her parents I know your parents are also immigrants did like diving into this story change your own perspective on what they went through, what you went through as a, you know, sort of your own history in any way? Yes. Uh, <laughs> in a, uh, maybe, maybe even in a slightly uncomfortable way. I, mm. The language piece, I, mm -hmm. I grew up speaking a ton of Korean. That's just something as, as I've lived my life here in America as an American woman, that's just, I have such a different relationship with my Korean Ness, um, in terms of the language and and otherwise, but also I I remember the first time my parents saw the movie and um, my mom was almost inconsolable. Mm. <laughs> I was not prepared to receive that emotion from mm. her specifically, and if you know her, this would make more sense. <laughs> I mean, she's not a woman who. 
I didn't have that kind of relationship with my parents in terms of like them like consuming the things that I make. Mm. I mean, not in like an overly like dramatic way. It's just like what isn't part of my upbringing. But she, she was, she was crying. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't ready to deal with that emotion. (laughs) So I ignored it. Um, But I got a call from her several days afterwards. And she, she said, you know, I'm driving right now and I'm, I'm still crying. I said, oh God, mom, what's going on? And, and she said that, um, she said, you know, I am Nora. Hmm. I said, what? She's like, do you understand? I am Nora. <laughs> she couldn't in her own way was like, you think this movie is about you? It's about me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved. And I, but I, then I understood what she's talking about. I don't know. I think that's still something that I'm trying to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I have my own kids now and like what is lost, not just for immigrants and um, for women, but just for anyone who's like left home mm-hmm. or has made a, a certain choice that you can't take back because we only have this one, one go around and like just how to reconcile that. Like it's impossible, yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, I guess in that way it sort of like shifted my perspective on like what the movie could be about for who. Mm-hmm. Um, I love running into different people who've seen the movie and they're such wildly different takeaways. Mm. I've had yeah. people tell me like, hey, like, I think I gotta find, you know, Cynthia from the fourth grade. Like, I gotta, like, I, I gotta do this and like. I'm, other people have just, I'm not sure about my, my boyfriend. Like, I feel like, you know, I got to break up with him. <laughs> oh my God. And <laughs> other people, you know, a, a lovely couple you know, in their eighties who were saying they saw the movie and went on a long walk afterwards and were just like holding each other's, uh, that love that they have and that in their marriage and how much they felt reaffirmed by it. So I, I don't know. And my mom thinks that the movie is about her. So, you know, full spectrum. Oh, that's what's so incredible about this movie is it's a very specific story. But I think so many people are finding ways they relate to it, you know, even if they come from a very different place or a different walk of life. It's it's really proof of an incredible storyteller, I think. Yeah, I think so. That's what Celine says. Celine says that she loves that the movie meets you mm-hmm. wherever you are in your life. And that's yeah. why, um, you know, she thinks that it could have, it can evoke such a different response out of someone. Yeah. People. I want to point out that we're able to talk today because this film has a SAG waiver and you're, you're able to do interviews. And at the time of recording, we're still on the strike uh, for the actor. So what has that been like for you to be able to get out there and talk about this film, but also be a part of this strike and sort of juggling those two lives, I guess? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I I got to be honest, at first I felt like very kind of conflicted and confused. And there are a lot of questions about what, you know, what are the details of this and what what is appropriate? Like I'm, I am a longtime SAG member and a WGA member. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely stand in solidarity with my union. Um, and also um, when we were given this waiver, it just felt 
I don't know. I think because this movie was like a surprise gift to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. at this point in my life and career. And I have, I feel so strongly that, um, well, a couple things that I, I, I'm absolutely certain that we, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it weren't for the independent film structure. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have people championing creators, filmmakers like Celine with leading actors, I still have to put it in air quotes, such as myself, I can't take that for granted. Like I, we need to be champion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also the whole idea that we, we need to keep fighting relentlessly really to ensure that we'll keep having movies like this at all. Right. I like, I, I feel like I know from experience that that's not something we can just be complacent about and expect will just happen organically. Yeah. Like, no, that's something you have to speak on. So I don't know. I think I'm just, I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying to juggle a lot of different things, of course, of like, you know, checking in of like, okay, what feels right? What's appropriate? Like, what is the priority here? What, what is happening? But, but these are the things that I'm thinking about right now. Well, female filmmakers, we were lucky enough to have Guillermo del Toro host a screening for us the other night mm. because of this waiver. And he was talking about, you know, I think the last three winners of the Mexican equivalent of the Academy Awards, I, I think, mm-hmm. were women. Mm. I hope I'm not misquoting that. But, but the need, the ongoing need to just ensure that we were paying attention to something like that. He was like 50% of the population uh, is now having a voice. That's pretty major. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm so glad that we can have people like him to give our little movie a little bit of, shine a little bit of, of light on, on us. I do want to look forward. You're kind of mentioning, you've mentioned how this experience is maybe shifting what you hope is to come in the future for you or what you're looking for, what you're open to. Has that changed already since the movie came out and was this huge success? Are you getting offers that maybe you think you wouldn't have had before this or different types of roles? Are things changing? I don't know if it's a result of this movie or if it is a result of like a constantly changing landscape you know, it's hard to say. And yeah. and I, I feel compelled to also point out that there's a part of me that still feels like this is all absolutely a miracle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I, I'm still completely overwhelmed by this like dream. I, you know, I remember our first day shooting when Teo and I, because we were shooting out of order, we walked out to uh, the Statue of Liberty the um, Circle Line Ferry docking the docks. Um, and the crew had already been there for hours setting up. And we had the Statue of Liberty in the background. We had our one camera, Shabia Kirchner on the 35 millimeter camera. And we walked out there so full of the responsibility of what we wanted to accomplish and this opportunity. And the crew clapped for us. <laughs> like, and it was just like this acknowledgement of what we were setting out to do. I mean, this like American movie mm-hmm. that is somehow 
mostly in Korean <laughs> with subtitles, um, shot on film with there's a, an American and Korean flag plastered on this camera. Mm-hmm. Like what what that is, what that means. Like it, it all felt so significant. So I don't know. I think that I'm just trying. It's not it's not hard to. I'm just like deeply appreciative. Like I, I again, like it's not something that felt guaranteed at all. Like I, yeah. I and so now in this moment, I want to I don't know, continue to like find an audience for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been genuinely exciting. I our international audience too. It's been so fascinating to see how different people around the world are connecting to this movie. And in terms of like next jobs and things, I mean, sure. Like, yeah, I will acknowledge everything is different. It's mm. so weird. <laughs> like I said, I went to my own funeral and I said, okay, you know. Um, and I, I think that now having had this process of making this movie, it's reinforced for me, like the whole reason why I started doing this. Like it, it's because of movies like this that involve people like this, like Celine. And I certainly don't selfishly want to wait until the end of my career for another chance like this. And I certainly don't want anyone else like me to have to wait and possibly never get a chance. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I can't pretend now that that is something that I will, (laughs) I can just sit back and accept. Yeah. As as kind of hard as that is. But so I don't know. I'm and I'm but I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. I'm excited. Just feeling really I don't know. It's like you know how actors always talk about how grateful they are. I'm become one of those people. <laughs> how annoying. <laughs> Hashtag really it's terrible. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> And I was reading some past interviews with you and, you know, I know you've written things as well. Is is writing still a, a focus for you? Are there stories you want to tell through that way that you're focused on at, at this point? Yes. There's a couple of things that are being developed and um, have been written and, you know, are in, in process. The writing piece of it, I guess I've always been trying to hold myself accountable in terms of like, what I can do, like not be in this passive position of feeling so like bummed about what's not just what's not there. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, taking a look at myself and being responsible, you know, not expecting like, why would I expect 
uh, you know, a, an older white guy to be able to write a character for me and to understand like the nuances of my experience. Why, why would I have a chip on my shoulder about, about that? Hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm excited to be able to talk about at some point hopefully <laughs> in the future, if we're all still here. You know, I think seeing the way this role allowed you to really show off different tools in your tool belt. Are there other types of stories you want to tell, you know, roles? I don't know, a musical. I know you've done Broadway before, but are there certain genre or types of things you hope to do in the future that to show yeah. off another, another oh, part yeah. of your skills? All this stuff. There's so much. It's really, it's so exhausting to feel like you're just getting started. Like at this age, I'm tired. (laughs) But, um, oh yeah, there's definitely some musical stuff that I want to get my hands in. Singing was my my gateway into Mm. this world. And my first job was a musical called Spelling Bee that we did on Broadway. Um, Theater has always been the backbone of everything that I do. So I'm looking forward to going back and doing that. And like, I I don't know. I've just, I've always felt like genre agnostic, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's almost like for someone like me, I haven't had the privilege to like, just to not be that way. Mm-hmm. It's always about the character, the what I can grab onto and like who I can offer my full like services over to, to. And it's just finding, finding more of that. There's tons. There's tons of filmmakers I'm so excited to work with and new, exciting things, you know, things that involve running and, and um, driving certain kinds of vehicles. And <laughs> sure, you know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's some exciting things to come. Absolutely. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on social media at VF Awards Insider. Um, Find me on social media at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um... We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are. AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.